Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Everyone and welcome back to New Books in French Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. My guest in this episode is Jonathan Irvine, the author of Humor in Contemporary France, Controversy, Consensus, and Contradictions. And the book was published by Liverpool University Press in 2019. Hi there, Jonathan. Hello, Roxanne. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me about the book today. Do you want to tell us where you're joining us from? Sure. I'm a senior lecturer in French and Francophone studies at Bangor University, which is in the north of Wales in the United Kingdom. A bilingual university because we're in an area where we've got a lot of people who speak Welsh as well as uh, English. It's mm-hmm. a bit of a interesting peculiarity of the area compared to a lot of other universities in the UK. So, yeah, I'm in quite a rural, slightly hilly part of North Wales and my teaching and research focuses on contemporary French society, various different aspects of cinema, sports, popular culture, such as comedy. Jonathan, I always ask my guests, you know, why France? How France? How did you come to be a scholar of French and Francophone studies? In some ways, I think it goes right back to when I was at secondary school, so my teenage years, I'm originally from Fife on the east coast of Scotland. And at school, I really enjoyed foreign languages. I did French and German. I was maybe a bit better at French, perhaps. Mm-hmm. And what always appealed to me about French, it wasn't just the language. It was also very much the the culture. So looking at French cinema and contemporary French politics really interested me. Then that led to doing a PhD on contemporary French cinema, looking at various debates to do with uh, social cohesion, things to do with the banlieue, to do with representations of immigrants in film and that sort of thing. And by a sort of complicated route that ultimately led me to this book ultimately and focusing on comedy a bit, France. Yeah, I want to ask you a couple of really broad questions before we get into looking at the four case studies, really, that the book explores in its in its chapters. You know, in the introduction to the book, you set up the question of humor as a serious issue in contemporary France. 
For you in this project, what are the parameters of what's captured by that term humor? Um, and I guess the other question I have to go with that is, you know, what, what sort of framework are you bringing to thinking about humor, to thinking about comedy? Before we even get to the French context, like how do you set those things up in the book? My prime focus in many ways is in stand-up comedy, mm -hmm. though it's not the exclusive focus in the book, because in a lot of ways one of my starting points was actually I didn't think there'd been enough written about humour in the French context, especially in the years immediately following the fatal attacks in the Charlie Hebdo offices in January 2015. There's quite a lot written about humour and offensiveness and so on, which I kind of thought, yeah, to a certain point, to a certain extent, I understood it. I kind of saw what it was getting at, but I thought that there was something missing in a lot of the discussions. A lot of the discussions were looking at humour in relation to concepts of rights, responsibilities, freedom of expression, which is entirely logical. But one of the things I've sought to do in the book in the chapter where I discuss Charlie Hebdo is look at how Charlie Hebdo influenced comedians. How did it influence what they did or didn't talk about? How did comedians stop what they're doing, keep going or modify what they're doing? And one of the things that I, I discuss in the Charlie Hebdo chapter is we see a number of quite different approaches. I mean, even if you look at things that were on French television, there's quite a range of different approaches. I mean, there's a number of sort of regular, daily, light-hearted television programmes. Some of them, they didn't run. They just didn't show or they basically involved somebody who normally plays a character coming on screen saying, look, I just don't think we can talk about humour with what's happened to Shirley Hebdo and so on. Then at the other end of the, the scale, you've got the latex puppets of Le Guignol, which is a sort of satirical show, or was, I should probably use the past tense mm. now, that kind of parodies an evening news bulletin. They just didn't hold back. They kind of featured scenes such as some of the Shirley Hebdo cartoonists arriving at the gates of heaven and in some ways use humour to make light of dramatic, serious and fatal events, which is what Charlie Hebdo itself has quite a history of. Would you say, Jonathan, that the book, just given the timing of it, you know, that the book came out in 2019, like, did you feel when you were writing it that those events in 2015 had really inspired the book, shaped the book, that the book is even kind of a bit in the shadow, perhaps, of those events? How determining a role, I guess, those those attacks played? Well, I'd been planning to write a book about humour and I'd already mapped out various chapters and conducted quite a bit of the research before the attacks mm -hmm. of January 2015. And I think, I'm trying to remember, I think by that stage I'd probably got the sort of rough planned structure of the four main case studies sorted. I'd have done a bit of quite a bit of the research, though I think in some ways the very dramatic nature of the Charlie Hebdo attacks, the loss of life, the debates about humour that they provoked, led perhaps to maybe slightly reframing parts of the book, in particular the introduction. But at the same time, I think that there are a number of sections of the book where basically what I'm doing is saying, well, there's one thing that people associate with certain types of humour, and it's this, but I want to show that there's more than that. So in some mm -hmm. ways, the book itself 
I'm showing, look, there's more to debates about humour in contemporary French society and things relating to Charlie Hebdo. There's a lot that one can look at in relation to stand-up comedy, uh, for example. And one of the things that in some ways links to Charlie Hebdo, even though it's kind of quite different, is I've got a chapter where I look at Muslims in France and humour, because if you look at Charlie Hebdo as an issue, I think that implicitly or explicitly, a lot of people have written about it have suggested, well, this shows that humour and Islam, they can't go together, they're maybe a bit incompatible. And that's something I really kind of set out to challenge by saying, look, if you go back to 2008, you've got a humorous series by and about young French Muslims called A Part Ça, Tout Va Bien, which literally means apart from that, everything's okay. I had the opportunity to interview the two people behind that series. Uh, I've seen various Muslim stand-up comedians or comedians who maybe grew up in Muslim families but would define themselves as being atheists or agnostic or not religious now. So I kind of wanted to, in some ways, use as a way in kind of conventional approaches to humour but saying, well, you know, there's a more sort of complicated constellation of forms of humour and comedians in France than is sufficiently acknowledged. Mm -hmm. In the introduction to the book, Jonathan, you set up, you know, the question of humour in real broad terms, bringing up theoretical work on humour and jokes by figures like Henri Bergson, Freud. After laying that out, you sort of opt for more a more kind of contemporary set of understanding of humor that that will allow you to think about these questions, the ones that you've just laid out, more specifically in the contemporary French context. Could you tell us a little bit about that move from some of those, you know, grand, maybe well-known theories of humor to, to how you're framing this discussion in this book? Sure. I mean, as well as writing about dreams, Freud has written about humour. Henri Bergson, his book Le Rire, uh, Laughter, focuses on what he sees as different functions of laughter, laughter, uh, relieving tension uh, and so on, laughter being based on things that are kind of overly mechanical. And in some ways, I think to a certain degree, the theories of likes of Freud and Bergson, they, they are valid to a certain degree, but they're also kind of of their time. They are in some ways derived a bit more from, in some cases, humour related to what you might see in silent cinema, for example. So they came at a time when stand-up comedy really wasn't around as an art form. They were writing and thinking at a time when society, French society, European society, was very different in terms of diversity, in terms of patterns of immigration and how they've shaped societies in places like France. So the sort of theories that I've looked at, they're kind of two things. One, the ones that look at a more contemporary focus that includes paying attention to stand-up comedy, and two, that have a kind of sociological focus that looks more closely at questions of race and diversity. I have, I think there are two questions, and one has to do with, I guess, the place of humour historically, whether or not there's something that you would want to draw our attention to in terms of the distinct role of humor in French culture, society. And then the other has to do with this, again, 
huge question. Before we even get to these questions of race and identity um, in a contemporary context, minority comedians and, and humor, whether or not there's something that we might call a national form of humor in the French context. Are there things we should know about going in? I think I'll maybe take those kind of two parts in reverse order. Mm, Uh, French humour. Susan Hayward in her book French National Cinema basically says, well, there's not just one thing that is the French National Cinema. There are several Mm -hmm. things that can be considered as uh, French National Cinema. And I think one could make a similar point about uh, comedy or humour in France when one talks about diversity in comedy, diversity in stand-up comedy and so on, diversity can mean a number of different things. Now, that can be racial diversity, ethnic diversity, uh, performers being from other minority backgrounds, uh, whether it's based on other factors uh, to do with sexuality, gender identities, and uh, so on. However, I would argue and I think I maybe hint at this here and there in the book, there's also a degree of diversity within humour in terms of forms of humour. So even if we're talking about performers, stand-up comedians, there are people who've got into it through radio, through television, people whose comedy is sketch-based, based on one-liners, people who are very into improv, for example. So basically there's quite a, a diversity of forms. And I think even if one restricts oneself to looking at French stand-up comedy. In some ways, it's hard to pin down, even though stand-up comedy, in a lot of ways in France, is relatively young compared to North America more generally, I think, and the United Kingdom. There's been quite a long tradition of satire in France, satirical Mm. publications that have challenged governments, official narratives, cartoons, have been a key part of a number of satirical publications going back quite a long time. So satire is a sort of outlet for maybe anti-authority spirit and humour. Perhaps one can link this back to the going back to as far as the French Revolution of 1789 even. I think protest and humour maybe can be tied together in uh, those sorts of ways. I wanted to ask you too, Jonathan, you know, the the book revolves around these four case studies. The choice to write about Charlie Hebdo seems seems quite clear from some of the things you've already said, but how did you decide on the four case studies and think about the kind of structuring of the book? How's the book set up and, and why? How did you get to that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a good question. And in some ways, the answer in part lies in the subtitle of the book, because the full title of the book is Humour in Contemporary France, Controversy, Consensus and Contradictions. Mm-hmm. And what I was kind of trying to do there is focus on the way humour has a potential to do different things. So in kind of simple terms, humour can inflame and provoke and humour can also contrastingly be used to try to challenge stereotypes or bring people together. Mm. And initially it was kind of seeing the four case studies as being two that were to do with humour as a form of provocation, humour that provokes controversy. And then two other ones that said, well, actually look at how humour in France during these turbulent times has been used to maybe challenge stereotypes and seek to create a more sort of positive image. I mean, Charlie Hebdo, 
clearly about a flashpoint, the chapter where I discuss the controversial comedian uh, Judani is about humour and offensiveness and provocation and so on and policing humour to a certain degree. Then the chapter about the Jamil Comedy Club is in part about what some people have said is both something that has redefined Frenchness and per, or sought to redefine Frenchness in some ways and also redefined French humour, at least French stand-up comedy. The chapter where I talk about Muslims in France and humour, in a lot of ways that initially was something that I perceived mainly as being about humour bringing people together, looking at the web series that I, I think I might mention, De Par Ça Tout Va Bien, mm-hmm. that started in 2008. So that was about a web series that kind of sought to demystify certain cliches or negative stereotypes about Islam through a lighthearted series of short episodes. Though that chapter actually grew into something broader, perhaps, because it ended up being not exclusively devoted to the web series, but also looked at a number of different comedians from uh, Muslim families and actually differing ways that comedians of who either continue to define themselves as Muslims or who grew up in Muslim families, the contrasting ways they use humour and seek to comment on French society through their humour. This term, Jonathan, comes up in relationship to some of the things you're talking about, this idea of understanding comedy, humour in the French context in relationship to, to identity, but also in relationship to multiculturalism. And I I'm curious about that because I guess in I live in Canada, so called, and uh, that's the line, right? That I live in a that Canada is a multicultural society, and of course, in the French context, while there are certainly many cultures at work in France, the line is much more of a kind of a universalist one. And so, yeah, I guess I wonder how you see this book as making an intervention in that sort of discourse around republicanism, universalism, and how humour is in in conversation with that in some way. Yeah, I mean, I think you, think you make a very good point about uh, diversity, multiculturalism, how it's discussed in different ways in different countries. And I think that France has quite a long tradition of, in some ways, it's a bit of a paradox. In one level, it could be argued that it's one of the most diverse societies in Europe, no, when you look at things like mixed marriages, when you look at the number of people who have a parent or grandparent who's born outside of France or from an ethnic or racial minority and so on, you've got people with North African roots, French Caribbean roots, Asian roots, uh, Middle Eastern roots, all sorts of different backgrounds. But France doesn't like to define itself based on the idea that it's a society composed of people of different groups defined in criteria such as race or ethnicity. It prefers to see itself as a society composed of citizens, people who have a relationship with the state Mm -hmm. on the basis of being individuals rather than members of groups, which in some ways is a bit problematic in that it can at times make it harder to identify and quantify certain forms of exclusion and I think a fairly blunt response some people might give would be to say well okay France is supposedly an egalitarian society 
people are supposed to be equal no matter what their their race, their ethnicity and so on. But how come uh, people who have grown up in the banlieue, people who are from racial or ethnic minority are more likely to be stopped for an ID check by the French police? How come people from certain types of areas or backgrounds defined by class or racial terms are less likely to go to university, be employed in certain types of jobs? Uh, Right. And that I think that these are massive issues uh, in France, and, and I think have been for quite some time. In particular, I would say since the early nineteen eighties, because early nineteen eighties is quite an important time, early to mid nineteen eighties, when it comes to collective action and protest by people who either were immigrants or the descendants of immigrants saying, look, we've been here for a certain amount of time. Where are our rights when yeah. it comes to voting, when it comes to other things, forming community groups and and so on? We've already, you know, this conversation and then that first chapter of the book, Jonathan, the presence of the Charlie Hebdo attacks and the kind of discourse around Charlie Hebdo following the 2015 events it plays a central role what else would you want us to to know or what would you want to highlight about that first chapter on Charlie Hebdo and the way you see it as setting up the rest of the book but also as a response to your observations of the way the discourse around Charlie Hebdo went after 2015 like where, where do you see yourself I mean there's enough stuff now out there on Charlie Hebdo that I, I almost feel like it's okay to say the Charlie Hebdo studies, you know, like that there's, there's kind sure. of been this proliferation of work on it. So where do you sort of see yourself in that, in that conversation since 2015? And then how do you see it as kind of a keynote chapter for the rest of the book? Yeah, it's, it's a complicated one because as I was already writing the book before the 2015 attacks took place, there were a number of occasions where I thought, right, there's something else I'm going to need to refer to or another reason to revise that part of the book. And that in itself brought a few challenges, maybe resulted in the book coming out a bit later than it might otherwise sure. have done. Whilst in some ways, Charlie Hebdo is a bit of an old one out chapter and it's the only one that doesn't really focus primarily on stand-up comedy, it's also one of a number of chapters that shows how France can kind of either tie itself in knots over humour or be a bit contradictory. Because if you look at Charlie Hebdo, it's a publication that's always prided itself on being controversial, being crude, silly. I mean, they take pride in being, and they use these terms often on their front cover, bit emission, stupid and nasty. They take pride in citing criticisms they have received from French heads of state and so on. But then all of a sudden, after the Charlie Hebdo attacks in January 2015, we've got political leaders, People in France who, in a lot of cases, would never have read Charlie Hebdo, saying, Je suis Charlie, I am Charlie. What did that even mean? Uh I kind of argue in the book, it meant lots of different things to different people. And actually, a few years on, if you look at how Charlie Hebdo's circulation figures went through the roof in the year following the attack, a few years later, they kind of quietened down. Mm -hmm. And 
somebody's trying to have to went back to being relatively marginal. There's so much one can say about certain French political leaders, Nicolas Sarkozy would be a prime example, who have just been so contradictory with a view to humour. I mean, when it comes to Charlie Hebdo and some of the cartoons they published that have uh, been seen as controversial in terms of their depictions of Islam. Uh, Nicolas Sarkozy is somebody who said of Charlie Hebdo, I prefer an excessive amount of caricature to an excessive amount of censorship. But from my perspective, when I heard those lines, my initial reaction was, hold on a moment, this is somebody who took legal action against the publishers of a book that was sold with a Nicolas Sarkozy voodoo doll. So his approach to humour and authority, is there a difference between when it's personal or when it's not personal? It just kind of, it just seemed mm. to be quite contradictory. Now, a related point could be made about some of the people, some of the political leaders and other figures we saw in the various uh, cortèges at certain demonstrations of solidarity in Paris and elsewhere who seem to be keen to demonstrate in favour of the freedom of Charlie Hebdo to be provocative, controversial and so on, but actually in some cases in their own countries didn't necessarily do a great deal that suggested they were in favour of uh, freedom of speech, for example. It's a fascinating question. I I haven't thought about it a lot, you know, recently and then revisiting the book, I was thinking about it again and my own ambivalence in and around and after those events about how I felt about the publication before those horrific, I mean, without a doubt, events, um, that it sort of changed the terms, I guess, of evaluating and responding to that, to the publication, for me anyway. And I think there were a number of people who felt real ambivalent, you know, about how to relate to to the humor of the publication, the satire of the publication, and it's, you know, deliberate, as we say, provocations. And it didn't make me want to buy it any more than I did before, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. And I think a lot of people in France and elsewhere would have similar views. And if you looked at attitudes to Charlie Hebdo's humor and what people would say publicly, at least, about Charlie Hebdo, I think you'd probably see quite a difference uh, following the attacks compared to before mm-hmm. the attacks. One of the, one of the things that I think was perhaps not really sufficiently nuanced in a lot of the things I read at the time about Charlie Hebdo in terms of provocation and humour. A lot of it focused on the cartoons. One hand, that's natural, but at the same time, Charlie Hebdo also features articles Mm -hmm. as well that look at things to do with scandals in society and that sometimes aren't straightforward gratuitous provocation and so on. One of the Mm. points I made in the chapter about Charlie Hebdo I think is quite important is that if you look at some of the controversial cartoons they've had, in some occasions they've been just a one-off sort of provocative image on the front page linked to something going on in France or the rest of the world and there haven't been articles really looking that much at that sort of issue in the relevant edition of Charlie Hebdo itself, but some of the controversial cartoons have been accompanied by contextualising articles, but maybe this is a consequence of the way things are disseminated via social media and so on. Often it's the image that is discussed and the articles that there may have been in the relevant edition of Charlie Hebdo have at times been almost completely ignored, Mm. which 
I think is a weakness in a lot of the discussion of Charlie Hebdo that we've seen in particular in a lot of the mainstream press and perhaps even to a certain extent some of the more academic writing on Charlie Hebdo even. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The second chapter, Jonathan, focuses on Giudane. The chapter's called Giudane from anti-racist activism to allegations of anti-Semitism, which sort of that's, there's an arc there in that title. So yeah, certainly been no shortage of discourse and debate around Giudane as, you know, a comedian who represents, has represented historically this anti-racist position, but then, you know, has been the subject of so much controversy given his own provocations. So yeah, what's your, what's your intervention in that chapter with respect to that, to that comedian and his humor? Yeah, I mean, for, for people who aren't familiar with Giudene, full name Giudene Mbala Mbala, he, in the 1990s, became quite well-known as a sort of stand-up, doing a few sort of sketch-based uh, things in French television, along with a Jewish comedian, Elie Simoun. I think just before the turn of the millennium, he was associated with the anti-racist left, mm-hmm. uh, standing against the Front National far-right party in uh, various elections. But then all of a sudden, in part in a sort of post-2001 context, post-September the 11th, uh, you've got him spending more time seeming to endorse conspiracy theories, becoming more divisive and making a number of declarations that have resulted in him being convicted of various offences to do with inciting hatred and on a number of occasions in particular inciting hatred against Jews. And he's made a number of controversial comments in the last uh, decade or two, uh, last two decades really, uh, about um, the Holocaust mm-hmm. and he's somebody whose work and responses to it raise issues to do with humour and offensiveness what is going too far where does the border lie between comedian and polemicist what is or isn't acceptable and how can humour be policed and how should it be policed and how do you see like you were saying earlier that the, that those first two chapters are sort of on the that you initially imagine them or that you might think about them as the kind of controversy pairing, <laughs> uh, provocation yeah. controversy pairing that, you know, how do you, how do you see them in relationship to one another? Like, I guess working on these two things, did the Charlie Hebdo teach you something about Chudene? Did Chudene teach you something about Charlie Hebdo and vice versa? And, and what are those things? Well, Chudene in some ways, a link between the two is Judene crops up in a documentary film by Daniel Leconte about a court case brought against Charlie Hebdo by the Conseil Francais du Culte Musulman, sort of umbrella group of French Muslim groups. And the journalists from Charlie Hebdo, when they see Judene turn up to show his support at the court case, they're somewhat frustrated because 
by this time, we're talking about, I'm trying to remember the exact year, I think we're talking about roughly 2007, I think. Judene is in some ways a sort of unwelcome ally to certain causes. I think in particular, after a controversial television appearance on a chat show in 2003, Judene was, I think, invited less onto television. He was seen as more unpredictable or volatile. So progressively, and this is a process that continued over the following decade and a half, he had to rely on perhaps less mainstream methods of communication. He he wouldn't necessarily be invited to certain things or wouldn't necessarily be interviewed by the media, but he would end up in the media when he was being quoted due to controversial and at times inflammatory declarations he had made about French society, on several occasions about Jewish groups, uh, being controversial was the way that Judane sought to remain in the media. In some ways, he basically said, I know how the media works. I'm playing them at their own game. I'm giving them the sort of raw meat that they uh, crave, which whether one believes that or not... uh, It's another thing, but that's how he's at times tried to justify it. So if we think about those last, well, second two, last two chapters and moving in that direction of comedy, humors, building certain types of community and reflecting in different ways um, the diversity of France, particularly when it comes to race and religion. The Jamel Comedy Club is the subject of the, is the focus of the third, the third chapter in the book. What are the principal claims and arguments of that chapter around well, the comedy community really that's formed around Jamel, that central comedian, but also, you know, the others who participated in that community and how that's evolved over time. I would say that there certainly was a stand-up community in France, and not just around uh, Jamel Debouze, although he's clearly a very important figure prior to the Jamel Comedy mm. Club, but Jamel Comedy Club, which started in 2006, I think played a massive role in bringing stand-up comedy to a wider audience, notably due to it being shown on Saturday evenings on French television. So I think it helped to boost the profile of stand-up comedy in France, and in particular boost the profile of a more diverse, perhaps more youth-focused form of stand-up comedy than one which involved kind of middle class, middle aged and almost exclusively white uh, comedians and lasted in France for uh, quite a few uh, years. And it also needs to be put in the context of what happened in the previous year. In autumn 2005, there had been a number of uh, weeks of unrest in France, in the banlieue, in these diverse housing estates and fringes of major cities, following an incident in which two uh, young people, one of uh, North African descent, one of West African descent, uh, died after a police mm. chase. And within the sort of short to medium term aftermath of this, Television channels in France were keen to boost on-screen diversity, so feature more young people from ethnically, racially diverse groups. And that, in some ways, is something that kind of went hand-in-hand with what the Jamal Comedy Club uh, did. Jamal Debouze 
comedian born in Trappes to the uh, west of Paris, uh, of uh, Moroccan descent. Within the German Comedy Club, you've got other performers of East Asian descent, North African descent, West African descent, and crucially, and this is sometimes overlooked, who are French and not of foreign descent. So in some ways, I look at the place of the Jamil Comedy Club within the history of stand-up comedy in France, what's significant, and what's at times overlooked? And this is something I'm working on actually in another publication, what is picking up some of the strands that I left off with or that I kind of uh, engaged with in the book about what it says about urban culture and how some people in France misread the relationship between the Jamil Comedy Club and urban culture in France. That fourth chapter, Jonathan moves to talk about the series. And so brings us back to that issue of the different forms that comedy takes. So, you know, live stand-up comedy. And I was just thinking as you were talking earlier, you know, about moving towards televised and other types of series, you know, satirical print comedy, like that kind of thing. And then stand-up, like that my, just because I almost never get to go to France these days, um, you know, my, my principal experience of French comedy, stand-up comedy is like through Netflix, frankly, <laughs> you know, that I, that I watch stand-up comedy as recordings and as these shows now. So, so yeah, I, I guess I have a couple questions. One is the sort of broad question about that series that you focus on in the final chapter of the book, but then also, you know, how, if at all, you've been thinking about what it means to look at something like stand-up. What's the difference between looking at something like stand-up as a live performance and then, you know, when stand-up becomes both a live performance and then something that circulates in this you know, global way through different media platforms, um, streaming services, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question. I think to a certain extent in the book, I touch upon something that's become even more developed in in recent years, the way in which new, I mean, even saying new media sounds a ridiculously old-fashioned <laughs> term now, but about comedy and social media and so mm-hmm. on and how some comedians seek to boost or maintain or establish a following via social media. I mean, some gain help following via uh, TikTok these days rather than just, say, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and uh, so on. And I mean, if you look at a quite a popular young comedian like Kev Adams uh, these days, uh, who despite the name is actually French. These are really important methods of communication, reaching fans. And I think that, I think Netflix is really interesting in that, like you, especially over the lockdowns, I think in some ways I've kind of gone in search of comedy as a bit of a, a light relief. And also something that I'm in a fortunate position that I can actually count as work <laughs> at times. If it's uh, same. To a certain extent, what's good is that, from my perspective, as somebody who's interested in kind of new contemporary French stand-up comedy, comedians of different backgrounds and so on, this is something that we see quite a bit of on uh, Netflix. If one looks at Netflix and the examples of French stand-up comedy, you've got comedians from all sorts of different backgrounds, a couple of shows by Fary, mm-hmm. uh, some shows by the sort of an older, more established act like Gad Elmaleh, I think. There was a show by Danny Boone uh, as well. There are various documentaries as well. I'm trying to remember what it's called in English, but there's a documentary called Voulez-vous rire avec moi ce soir, which is 
by one of the people involved in the initial troupe of performers on the Gemini Comedy Club that looks at humour in all sorts of different international contexts and bring things bang up to date and something that is come out this year, there is now a, a series, or a drama series, if you like, one of a number of French drama series that's been quite successful internationally, thanks to the like of Netflix, called in French mm-hmm. Drôle, or I think Standing Up, it's known as in the English-speaking world, at least in the UK. That is a, I think a web series about, a series on Netflix, about six episodes, fictional series, that is based around the French stand-up com- comedy industry and a number of young comedians of different backgrounds trying to make it and comedians balancing family life with trying to be a stand-up, comedians trying to balance earning money through jobs that they're kind of not that into and their desire to be comedians, uh, working as comedians in the stand-up circuit in Paris and also getting involved in things in the media, writing for television and so on. So even though it's, I mean, it's uh, maybe to, it's not something that really seeks to present itself as being based on a true story, but the fact that we've arrived at a point now in 2022 where stand-up comedy is the main focus of a drama series by a French director and producer written primarily, but not exclusively, for a French audience... This tells us something really important that actually stand-up comedy is something that people can relate to perhaps quite a bit more than, say, 10 or 15 years ago. I mean, when Jamel Debouze was introducing the first episode of the Jamel Comedy Club on French television in 2006, he actually felt the need to explain to people watching in the place he was performing and indirectly the the audience and TV what stand-up comedy was. (laughs) Whereas now, I think, one thing that I think is important with uh, Drôle, or standing up as it's called, is if it's come out in France, this is the evidence that people kind of have more of a sense of what stand-up comedy is. It's something that people can relate to. And the sort of release and popularity of this series is, I think, symptomatic of the increased visibility and profile within the French media landscape and within French culture in all sorts of different ways. I guess the other sort of question I have that comes back to this theme of the ways that humor and comedy can divide or unite, can, can you know, reinforce stereotypes and certain forms of power and inequity, inequality, or, you know, challenge those things is, you know, in a more broad sense, like, what do you think, uh, Jonathan, about there's certainly much more diversity in French comedy, just if you even take that slew of things that you just listed in terms of what's available to watch on Netflix. Let's just take that as no, this is this podcast is in no way a plug or affiliated with Netflix, just to be clear, but but it's there. So something like that, that there's such a range of things, such a range of types of people, of men and fewer women. And that's another question that I want to ask you about is, you know, the way that gender figures in all of this. Um, and and the role that women play in French comedy, but also, you know, where are we at in terms of this issue of diversity? I think some people make criticisms of Jamel and others, you know, that there's been a certain kind of incorporation of, you know, the funny Arab or the funny Muslim that is, in fact, ultimately like reinforcing certain ty- types of stereotypes. 
where are we at in terms of comedy having this oppositional potential, the potential to do anti-racist work, to really bring about diversity? What are your thoughts on those kinds of questions? Yeah, I mean, I think some of the things you've touched upon there are very relevant to stand-up comedy and French Mm -hmm. film comedies, as we've seen a number of French film comedies in recent years. Uh, Qu'est-ce que l'on a fait au bon Dieu and the two sequels to that. I think that whilst we see a degree, a quite significant degree of diversity within a lot of French stand-up comedy, if you look at the acts performing in central Paris, for example. I mean, part of it depends on, well, what aspect of diversity are you talking about? If it's racial and ethnic minorities, yeah, okay, we've got people from a variety of different backgrounds. As you've touched upon, I think women are underrepresented in comedy in France and beyond that. I think that one thing that's often overlooked when it comes to the social origins of uh, or socioeconomic origins of comedians is that comedians, including quite a few of the ones involved in the initial group of the Jamil Comedy Club, quite a lot of them are actually from more middle class backgrounds than you might think. I mean, Jamil Dabu's okay, not really the case with him, but there are Comedians in the initial troupe of the Jamil Comedy Club whose parents were gynecologists, doctors, academics. Um, <laughs> so to see the Jamil Comedy Club as being focused on sort of young people from working class backgrounds and the bon Dieu and so on is ridiculously simplistic, but nevertheless uh, was almost overly portrayed uh, as such by quite a few French journalists around the time of its mm-hmm. release. There's sometimes recourse to, I don't know, I, I would almost call lazy use of stereotypes of underrepresented groups. In some ways, the Jamil Comedy Club and certain other uh, forms of comedy are kind of based on, well, look, we're all from different groups. We're all making fun of each other. Everyone's fair game. It's all OK. But when you've got someone like Jamil Dabouz or other members of the comedy club making jokes about people who are Romanian or Pakistani, which are based on crude stereotypes. I think these are particularly problematic, given that people from such groups aren't really represented either within the Jamal Comedy Club or all that much within French stand-up comedy more broadly. Uh, When it comes to gender and sexuality, uh, a number of people, I think Nelly Kemenar is one example, have said that in the Jamal Comedy Club, there's a number of routines that are kind of based on fairly crude stereotypes of people who are gay or lesbian. Uh, and then when we talk about LGBTQ+, there is the kind of, I mean, broader question to do with community or communities in the plural. And I think that sometimes there is a bit of a sort of inherent sexism within some of the sorts of routines of certain male stand-up comedians. And I don't think the idea that, well, they're just playing a certain type of character on scene is necessarily a particularly good justification for a certain uh, type of joke. Mm-hmm. So how how diverse you see French stand-up comedy in some ways depends whether you want to focus on race, ethnicity, social class, yeah. gender, uh, sexuality, or gender identity, for that matter, and indeed 
number of other uh, criteria. One could go on neurodiversity. Uh, it's so interesting to me because the last stand-up that I watched, French stand-up that I watched, was Fahy. And, you know, well, again, my own reactions aren't really the subject of this interview, but, you know, I heard a lot about his comedy. There were some parts that were just great you know and then other parts where i was real uncomfortable <laughs> it's just a it's a grab bag you know a lot of these comedians it's really it's hard to find someone who's who doesn't at some point make me real ambivalent <laughs> about what's going on or who's being mocked or who's being attacked or you know even though on some issues it's pretty powerful stuff so yeah it's it's complicated for sure I don't know if you have that, that yeah. how you deal with that in your own work. I just imagine that that came up for you as you were working on this project. Oh, oh absolutely. Absolutely. One thing that I would say is that I probably have, I definitely have very different attitudes to the different forms of humor, different performers. Uh, and, and so on that I discuss in the book, I mean, I wouldn't want anyone to think that I'm trying to say that, look, all the forms of humor, all types of jokes I discuss, I think they're all morally okay because I think, no, some of them are very morally problematic or raise complicated and at times messy issues about implications of certain types of joke. Um, And I've sought to strike a balance between looking at comedians that I think are significant by virtue of what they're doing with comedy and what they're saying about Mm -hmm. France. And on a purely subjective level, I would say, look, some of the comedians I discuss, I think they're a lot lot funnier than others. But ultimately, I think it's really hard to define what is funny, what is a a comedian. Mm -hmm. I mean, some people, especially in relation to Judani, got into habit of referring to him as a former comedian. Well, when what they meant by that was somebody who used to be primarily associated with stand-up comedy, but who I now perceive to be somebody who just makes outrageous declarations to gain publicity. Mm. And whilst I think that some of the things he talked about on and off stage were truly abhorrent, and which is reflected in the number of uh, court convictions he has for various type of offences, he has been described as a former comedian by all sorts of politicians, actresses, and so on at a time and who's continuing to perform comedy. So, I mean, there are all sorts of issues to do with how comedians engage with stereotypes. To what extent do they depend on appealing to stereotypes associated with their own race, background, appearance, and so on? I mean, there's so much that's been written about comedy, jokes, and uh, stereotypes going back quite some time. And in some ways, well, one of the sorts of key strands that appears in some works is the idea that sometimes when a, a group is more comfortable, more established within a, a society, they do different things with stereotypes. They challenge them, they reappropriate them, they kind of turn them back on the majority community and so on. And I mean, one sort of, I should have maybe mentioned it earlier in discussing my lockdown, one thing that I found interesting about something that I did just for the sake of it during lockdown. I actually did a, an online stand-up comedy course because I knew somebody oh, wow. uh, who I was friends with from my university years who actually does a bit of comedy and he was doing this stand-up comedy course by his own, which I thought, yeah, give it a go. I'm not sure it's going to go anywhere in terms of my sort of, uh, I wasn't 
planning on switching from academia to comedy, which would come as no surprise to whole generations of students who've uh, seen me trying to wheel off a few jokes in class. One of the things I remember from what the comedians were uh, on this course were telling us about structuring a set is that what a lot of comedians do at the start of a one-person show is talk about either something recognisable in the venue or how the comedian looks or if they look like somebody. And that in some ways is about trying to create a sort of bond with the audience saying, I've noticed what you've noticed, kind of bringing a degree of togetherness of, of sorts because laughing as a group, I mean, that's one of the sorts of things that can be, I think, one of the things that has kind of stood the test of time from the sort of things that uh, is discussed by the likes of Freud and mm-hmm. Bergson. Uh, that, that, that that's really important. And one of the things on this comedy course that one of the comedians said is, look, at the start, you're maybe going to focus on the obvious, but what you want to do progressively in your act is, even like in a short five-minute performance, is to kind of show the sort of more complicated, quirky or interesting or unpredictable elements of not necessarily what you are, but what you want to be through how you perform. And that was really uh, interesting to me. And one thing that I've looked at a bit in some things I've done since the book is sort of evolving uses of humour by uh, different groups in France. That's really interesting. Um, So... The future doesn't hold a stand-up career, perhaps, Jonathan, <laughs> or maybe it does. We don't know. <laughs> but you did do some training in that regard. What have you been working on since the book came out and, and what's next for you? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I have done uh, two, I think, five-minute open slots at a very local uh, comedy gig cool. in uh, North Wales in front of audiences of between 30 and 50 people uh, twice since the start of the year. But m- more seriously, one of the things that I've really enjoyed about the book is just hearing from a number of people that have got in touch saying, oh, we're doing this thing, looking at comedy in a variety of different national or international contexts. Do you want to be involved? And that's been uh, really good fun. Um as well as giving me an excuse to continue focusing on comedy over a period when there's been a global pandemic going on, which I think in its own way might have been slightly therapeutic. So, yeah, there are kind of about three sort of separate things that I've been working on recently to do with comedy. One is an article about comedians of East Asian descent that, uh, we've seen in France in the last uh, decade or so. One of the people I discuss is Frédéric Chaud, uh, a comedian and actor who's been in a number of popular French film comedies and uh, was in one of the first, some of the first few series of the Gemini Comedy Club. Somebody of Vietnamese, Cambodian descent uh, and how other comedians who become famous since him have sometimes maybe adopted maybe a more I don't know been more blunt with their criticisms of French society rather than necessarily performed as much material about the sort of stereotypical Asian stereotypes of uh, Chinese restaurants karaoke and that sort of thing and kind of almost turned things on his head by saying well look to, to you in France were a minority, but hey, there are 
well over a billion of us in the world uh, and so on and kind of maybe turning some sort of power relations on their head a bit. Mm. I've also written um, an article that is due to come out in a a credited volume with Routledge that's where I look at kind of stand-up comedy and urban culture in France. In part, it's inspired by the way in which people at the time of the Jamel Comedy Club starting looked at it as a symbol of urban culture in France, which I think is a bit problematic in some ways. And I kind of draw certain parallels or tease out some differences between a 1980s programme called uh, HIPHOP or HIP, HOP in, in French, uh, short-lived but culturally significant 1980s programme about hip-hop in France that's seen as playing a big role in popularising hip-hop culture, breakdance, rap, graffiti uh, in French uh, society, drawing a parallel between that and the way in which the Jamel Comedy Club had a big impact on stand-up comedy in France. And I'm trying to think what the third a lot. <laughs> thing that I've looked at yeah, yeah, I'm kind of losing track of them. Uh, there's one other thing. Yeah, yeah, it just actually, uh, it'll probably have happened by the time this uh, interview comes out. I'm about to go off to Paris to take part in a conference at Paris Nanterre University uh, that was invited to take part in by one of the organisers, Alain Vaillant, who's written several books about humour in France. And it's a conference about... Uh, national and international forms of laughter so we're going to be co-authoring a book chapter looking at the extent to which French humour especially by stand-up comedy has been potentially become a bit more Americanized and the extent to which American forms of stand-up comedy have been reappropriated uh, in France and then once I get all those sorts of things uh, a bit further along by the end of the year. There's a new project uh, in the pipeline about uh, visions of masculinity in contemporary French uh, sports films, which is a bit of a kind of brings together some things I've looked at in the past. And also one or two films that could be classified as comedy. So there'll be a bit about humor in there along the way. I think that all sounds incredibly exciting. And I, I, I look forward to hearing more about, about that work and to and to tracking it down once it's out. Jonathan, I just want to thank you so much for writing this book and for joining me to speak with me about it. Well, thank you. It's been great to chat.